0: Happy History Hump Day out there to all of you queer, history enthusiasts. I'm Julian Rushbrook, the host of A History Most Queer. I hope that all of you are enjoying the month of June. It is the month when most of us uh, on earth celebrate LGBTQIA pride. If you all are brushed up on your history then you know that it was in June of 1969 that patrons of the queer bar, the Stonewall Inn, rose up in defiance against the harassment by the New York City Police Department. Each year, marches and demonstrations have marked that moment when queer folks told the people in power that they were no shrinking violets and that human dignity and respect should be afforded to all humans, regardless of their gender or sexual orientation. June also happens to be the month where, in the United States, we celebrate Caribbean heritage. It just so happens that the two celebrations have some commonality as the subject that we're going to be exploring this Wednesday happens to be both a queer and Caribbean American icon. Her name is Sylvia Rivera. She was there in New York in 1969 when the clash that kick-started the gay liberation movement went into full steam ahead and forever changed the history of this planet. Now I suppose I should, before I begin talking about this woman, I should probably address the matter of language. Sylvia and her peers use many terms to refer to themselves that in the 2020s would be considered at best outdated and at worst as vile slurs. As time has gone on, the terms we use to refer to trans people and others has changed, often to become more precise. So I just want to say now that I will be using some of these older terms. If you're especially upset by these old-fashioned terms, you are free to stop this little podcast right now. I understand. There are many LGBTQIA folks of older generations that know the word queer, which is a part of this show's title, as a terrible slur that was used against them when they were growing up. Over time, that term has been reclaimed and rehabilitated, but for some, it's perfectly understandable that it might be a bit grating so if you're sensitive to these terms and they bring up unpleasant feelings just pause this right here and come back next week also i feel like i should probably mention that sort of as a trigger warning there will be discussion about suicide so if that's another issue that maybe you're not comfortable hearing come visit us next week so let me continue if you're still with me you've taken this warning in some and have some idea of what is ahead. So let's dive right into the life of one of the mothers of Pride. Sylvia was born on the 2nd of July, 1951, in the city of New York. She was assigned male at birth and given the name Ray. I do not mean to dead name her, but there will be quotes by her where she refers to her early life as the boy, Ray. Nonetheless, I'll otherwise use feminine pronouns and her chosen name for the most part. The matter of her gender expression was something she spoke quite frankly about, and often, sometimes referring to herself as a a transvestite, sometimes as a gay man, sometimes as a drag queen. There's all sorts of terms that she used throughout her life. She would spend most of her life working to help those in the city that never sleeps. They were pushed to the margins of life. Her father, Jose Rivera, was a Puerto Rican man, and her mother, Carla Mendoza, was Venezuelan. Carla gave birth to Sylvia in the back of a taxicab as they were racing to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. It was a rough start to life for the young Sylvia. It seemed that the deck was stacked very heavily against her. She was the child of immigrant parents, who were often the last to get support in their new country. Then as now, immigrants to the United States had an uphill battle to make a home and a life in a country, but especially one where they were a racial minority. The new family had even more barriers thrown before them as Sylvia's father Jose left Carmen and the newborn. Although he would return to try and be a part of his child's life when she was four years old, the young Sylvia refused to have him be a part of her life. Carmen's mother, Villajeta, was very involved in Sylvia's life. Carmen did eventually meet another man and they had a child, Sylvia's half-sister, Sonia. Sonia's father was unfortunately no better a parent than Jose had been. While he did stick around, he had no interest in being a father to either child and could often have violent anger issues. This domestic trauma drove the young mother to commit suicide when Sylvia was only three years of age. Now an orphan, her grandmother, Vejita, stepped in to take care of the children. While she had the best of intentions, there would be friction between grandchild and grandmother. From the grandmother's point of view, her grandson was behaving far too femininely. Carmen had allowed Sylvia to play with her clothing, makeup, and jewelry. The otherwise allowed Sylvia to wear girls' clothing, but when she reached school age, pressure was now applied to the child to conform to more masculine manners and dress. My grandmother used to come home and find me all dressed up, just like, I'd get myself whipped, Sylvia once said. Well, we don't do this. You're one of the boys. I want you to be a mechanic. I said, no, but I want to be a hairdresser. I want to do this, and I want to wear these clothes. The gender roles can often be rigid, especially in Puerto Rico and Venezuela. The macho cultural ideas came with the immigrants from these places as they tried to become Americans. Sylvia's grandmother was not alone in being uncomfortable with how this young child was behaving. Most of the neighbors were also troubled by how happy Sylvia was wearing the clothes that she felt most comfortable in. She would be put into a Catholic boarding school by her grandmother as the elder woman's health became impaired. The church likewise had ideas about gender expression that ran contrary to how Sylvia went about her life. Bullying happened and the school's administration punished her for defending herself. Back at her grandmother's place, it was as though Viahita was experiencing something similar, with adults slandering her and her grandchild regarding how the 10-year-old was moving about the world. She was trapped between wanting to support Sylvia's choices and protecting her grandchild from being harmed and made into a pariah. The protective aspect won out and Viajita disallowed Sylvia from embracing her femininity. With her feeling neither safe nor supported at either her home or school, Sylvia ran away. The place she ran to was 42nd Street. At that time, it was an area known for queer and homeless people living on the street. It was her hope that this community might be a home that would truly embrace her. What she found at first was not a warm and embracing community, but instead people struggling to survive. In her case, in order to survive, the 11-year-old Sylvia resorted to becoming a child prostitute, as did many other homeless youths. Despite the dangers inherent in that part of town, it was on 42nd Street that she came into contact with others like herself drag queens, trans folk, and others that had been pushed to the very edges of society were now her neighbors and friends. In fact, it would be here that she met one of her dearest friends, Marsha P. Johnson. Marcia became a mother figure and friend for Sylvia after they met in the early 1960s. As a fellow drag entertainer and trans woman, she would be a loving example for how to survive and thrive in a world that was seemingly more willing to cast anyone like them aside. Marcia would also impart an activist streak in the young mentee. The two would be lifelong friends and together would be keystones in the fight for queer liberation. Both women's stories are inextricably linked to that of the Stonewall Uprising. The community in that part of New York allowed Marcia, Sylvia, and others like them to have a space that was safer to be themselves. Police were still a danger to queer people. There was a law on the books that stated that if a person was wearing less than three pieces of clothing that matched the gender on their identification, they could be arrested. Still, in Greenwich Village, the community had bars and underground ballrooms that provided a welcoming space for queer folk. When I say the spaces were welcoming, that is only half true, however. If the bouncer at bars like the Stonewall did not look highly upon trans people or other queers of color, they would be barred from entering, despite all of the shared trauma that the community had. Sometimes the reality was as clear-cut as black and white. Many white gay men were less than enthused to be around lesbians, trans people, and for that matter, any people of color. Even in the most marginal of groups, the color line was still very present. The stone wall itself had another layer of danger to it. The bar was run by the Mafia. They had no problem with queer patrons, so long as they paid the right price. The Mafia would pay off the police, who would ignore anything going on there. But if the mobsters felt that they were being shortchanged, then the police would come and raid the place. At this time, queer people could not legally gather in such a place to drink bootleg liquor and dance with members of the same sex. This is what we learned to live with, said Sylvia, as she recalled events in that summer of 1969. In the end, the almighty dollar was the only thing that bought loyalty from the Mafia. Even with police being paid off, Most queer places were raided on a weekly basis. The police had a moral division. They would go in to clear the bars out, confiscating all the liquor and taking their mob payouts. There might be a few arrests, but no time the place would be opened back up and the process would repeat. Everyone seemed to have their eyes darting over their shoulders at all times. An arrest by these morality police could spell the end of a career landlords would effect tenants for being arrested at a gay bar. This is saying nothing about the physical assaults that also would occur at the hands of the police officers. On the 28th of June 1969, the Stonewall Inn again went through the usual police raid scenario. Grab the booze, take the money, arrest whoever was dressed too far from the gender norms or whose face didn't match their identification pictures due to wearing makeup. Sylvia recalled that night, I wasn't in full drag. I was dressed, you know, very pleasantly. I was wearing a woman's suit. Bell bottoms were out then. I had made this fabulous suit at home, and I was wearing that, and I had the hair out. Lots of makeup and lots of hair. Now, it is at this point that the history of Stonewall starts to become the myth of Stonewall. There are several witnesses that say that Sylvia Rivera was there that night. Likewise, there are several that say she was not. The evidence seems to lean more towards her having not been there on the first night of the uprising. Sylvia was only 17 years old when all of this kicked off. Her mother slash friend, Marsha P. Johnson, is even quoted as saying that Sylvia had not been there the first night. Some other sources claim that Sylvia wanted to have it be known that she was there in order to inspire other Puerto Rican girls like herself. So, did she throw a brick? A bottle? Maybe a Molotov cocktail? Probably not that night, but the subsequent days did have her and Marcia there in the thick of it. The police arrived, but this time they did not leave once they collected their payment. This time the crowd was divided into men, women, and others. The police took the arrested patrons out, one at a time, as a crowd of onlookers cheered with each person being brought out of the small bar. The crowd started to pelt the police with coins, shouting pay off at the officers. They had gotten their money already, so why are they arresting people now, which was a break with the normal routine. Eventually, the crowd started throwing more than just some pocket change. The detained struggled now despite having been placed in handcuffs. More people came to the defense of their brothers and sisters, helping those already cuffed to disappear. And then everything kicked into high gear. Bottles, rocks, bricks, and even parking meters were thrown at the police, smashing out the windows of the patrol cars and the paddy wagons. Eventually, the police locked themselves in the gay bar for protection from the crowd who continued to pelt the cars and smash out windows in the Stonewall Inn. The crowd formed a chorus line and started singing while dancing a can-can. We are the village girls, we wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear, we show our pubic hair. By that point reinforcements arrived armed heavily with military weaponry and equipment. Eventually, the clash ended when tear gas was used to disperse the crowd. Only a handful of people were arrested that night, and when the sun rose, the street was littered with sparkling broken glass, and the air was filled with the smoke of burning trash cans. The crowd returned that next night to protest against the police and their brutality. And they returned the night after that. For six days, the police and the queer community battled against each other in Greenwich Village. The revolution had begun. Sylvia was yearning to do whatever she could to fight for liberation. It was an uphill battle, as the very community that she was itching to help were all too happy to see her turned away. I was there when the GAA, or Gay Activist Alliance, first started, four months And it was four months old. I made a phone call from Jersey and said, do you accept transvestites? At the time, I was still using the word drag queen. I said, do you accept drag queens? Sure, come on down. This was from an interview that Sylvia gave in 1989. The mostly gay white men tried to turn her away when she arrived, not accepting her name, necessitating her having to sign using her dead name of Ray Rivera. Still. Her efforts to petition the city for non-discrimination policies, as well as arrests by the NYPD proved that even if the cis gay men were not comfortable with her gender expression, they could not deny her tenacity and the fire that burned in her to change the world. In June of 1970, a march was planned to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. The Christopher Street Liberation Day was the first Pride event. In fact, Pride was so much a part of the idea behind this event. Rather than cowering in shadowy alleyways, this was going to be a display of solidarity and defiance in the full light of day. Queer folks would boldly and proudly chant, Gay Power. Sylvia and Marcia marched that day with other trans people. This was the initial cry for power and equality. The genesis of that event that decades later, all over the world, queer people and their allies celebrate in the form of pride. Despite her being so integral to the movement, the ever-present dangers of poverty still caused trouble for the young woman. She was homeless again not too long after the first Christopher Street day. Still, she continued her efforts to unite the community together to demand dignity. Sylvia and Marcia would form the group STAR, or Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries. Alongside other groups, such as the Gay Activist Alliance and Radical Lesbians, They would all work to try to help each group in their struggles with the repression and discrimination that they all faced. With Star, there was now a place for trans people to turn to, and in it was an organization that could help them and help them feel a sense of community. The organization would eventually get a physical location, Star House where trans youths that found themselves homeless could come to find shelter and love. It lasted for three years, but ended up shutting down due to funding issues. On top of that, the 1973 Liberation Day rally was an event that truly drove a stake into Sylvia's heart. For a while by that point, the queer rights movement had been slowly but surely pushing trans people out of key positions. Initiatives to include trans people in anti-discrimination legislation were vaporizing, as the mostly white, gay, and lesbian activists focused more on issues affecting people like themselves. At the Liberation Day rally, Sylvia had to force herself onto the stage to speak to the crowd. You can still find footage of this on YouTube, it's quite something. She was booed off of the stage after pleading for support for people like herself, who had laid their bodies and lives on the line for queer rights at the Stonewall and its aftermath. The crowd was overwhelmingly against her and she was hit by people in the crowd as she left the area in disgust. Once she arrived home, she cut her wrist, wishing for death in her despair. Thankfully, Marsha P. Johnson had followed her home she was able to get Sylvia to a mental health facility so that she could be stitched up and recover. She spoke of how the two would cross the River Jordan together. This support helped to lift her spirits, but after discharging, a close friend died of a drug overdose. The compounding traumas had her deciding that maybe it was time to leave the Big Apple. It was at this point that she moved to Terrytown, New York, in 1973 with her lover, and the two ran a catering business. She would also perform drag shows in the suburb, and things were relatively quiet for Sylvia. She would return to New York City in 1992, upon hearing the news that her mother and friend, Marsha P. Johnson, had been found dead in the Hudson River. Although foul play was suspected by the medical examiner, the police did not initiate an investigation, claiming that Marcia had simply committed suicide. Sylvia was absolutely crushed by Marcia's death. Once again, she would find herself homeless, living in a makeshift dwelling on the Christopher Street piers. Throughout her life, she had suffered from the abuse of drugs and alcohol, but this time around... She spiraled into the bottle after nearly two decades of sobriety. She would recall Marcia having talked to her about the two of them crossing the River Jordan. Now Marcia had made that crossing without her. She said, "Part of me went with her." Even though she was living in a homeless encampment, her instincts from when her and Marcia had run Star House quickly took hold again. She became a mother to the other young homeless folk on that pier. The fight for the downtrodden did not stop, but it seemed an unscalable mountain. The city ended up clearing out the encampment to make room for a tree-lined recreation area where bicyclists and joggers could run along the Hudson and admire the views. With all of the thought that had been put into developing this area, no thought was given to the dozens of homeless people now uprooted from a place that they had called home. As all hope seemed to be lost, a friend of hers, upon hearing that she was homeless, had her move into Transy House. It was based on the Star House model and was a home to many queer youths who had not so much run away but had been thrown away by their families of origin. Once again, she became a mother. Everyone calls me Ma, Ma Sylvia. We help everybody that we can and we get involved in everything that we can. Matthew Shepard, Diallo, Luima. We just go all over getting arrested. At Transy House, Sylvia quit booze, cold turkey, and met her life partner, Julia Murray. The two would remain happily together until Sylvia's death. The pair, along with their chosen family, would continue to fight against the brutal murders of transgender women, whose cases, like Marsha P. Johnson's, always seemed to end up going cold. If someone was actually arrested and charged, they were given light sentences, as the panic defense, which had been used most famously in the torture and murder of Matthew Shepard in 1998, was often the initial one that the defense would use. Sylvia would relaunch her organization's STAR, but with a slight tweak. It was now the street transgender action revolutionaries, having exchanged the word transvestite for one that was more contemporary and accurate. In her later years, her importance began to be recognized outside of the trans and homeless communities of New York. She would go to Pride events overseas, where she was hailed as an icon and a mother to the greater LGBTQIA movement. Even to her last breath, she was fighting for equality. She was diagnosed with liver cancer. And despite this strain on her health, she was still determined to see her entire community across that River Jordan and to the promised land. On her deathbed, she argued for SONDA, or Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act. Law and policymakers came to her bedside as she urged them to do right by the queer community. On the 19th of February, 2002, Sylvia Rivera died. But later on that year in December, the state of New York adopted SONDA, and it was signed into law. Her legacy is still being written as more people become aware of her contributions. The love and respect that she often lacked in life is coming to her finally in death. Well I hope all of you enjoyed hearing this little summary of the life of Sylvia Rivera. She was an icon for everyone in the LGBTQIA community. At times she would identify as a gay man, at other times as trans, and later in life she preferred to not be labeled at all. Well, there is one label, I think, that would fit her best. And that would be Ma Sylvia. If you liked hearing about this icon, drop us an email at historymostqueer at gmail.com or come by and visit our Instagram at historymostqueer. You can see photos of this and every week's subject and even drop us a message there Share this pod with friends and family. You never know who might find one of these episodes especially engaging. Also, if you can, rate the podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you find my voice making its little noises. It helps this little podcast to reach more ears. Until next week, I am Julian Rushbrook wishing all of you a lovely remainder to your week bye bye